be new. You would help us to understand, not just in our minds, but in our hearts as well, that we might go away and be changed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, the celebrities are back in the jungle, and already the muttering has begun. Uh, most notably this week between a famous ex-politician and an apparently famous uh, YouTuber. Uh, remarks backwards and forwards about the sort of person that they perceive the other person to be. And the scene uh, is not dissimilar around Jesus. Verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. What is Jesus doing with the undesirable deplorables of his day? Even eating with the obviously irreligious, obviously immoral tax collectors. I guess they're there, they're thinking, well, Jesus' teaching may be impressive. Jesus is good at gathering a crowd, but he is judged by the company he keeps. He is guilty by association, and they respond with miserable muttering. What is our response to the company Jesus keeps? If we're Christians here this morning, how do we feel about his mission and about the part that we have to play in his mission? Does the reason that Jesus came into the world delight us, or does it sometimes leave us with a little bit of a sour taste in our mouth? If you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, there's plenty in this chapter for you as well. These three parables, they provide a beautiful picture of God's character, a beautiful picture of God's priorities. And the third especially, in a rather surprising way, it functions like a window onto the darkness of the human heart. And together, put together, they, they point us forwards to our shared urgent need to respond to Jesus. It's a, it's a long chapter. As I've been pre preparing it this week, I've been thinking I could do one, two, three, four sermons on this chapter. We're just going to do one. Um, hopefully, um, the two simple headlines we're going to, to hear are going to help us. First of all, God's joyful mission to save the lost. Verses 1 to 7, God's joyful mission to save the lost. Then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I guess this story sounded strangely familiar to Jesus' first listeners because in the Old Testament, God often portrayed himself as a shepherd and described his people as the flock. And he said, they've wandered away from me and I'm going to go and I'm going to look for them. But there's a twist in this story. It's not a whole flock that has got lost. It's just one sheep. It doesn't look like the wisest move, does it? You've got a hundred sheep, you lose one of them, and you leave 99 behind to go and look for one. Doesn't really seem to add up. But the maths work if the mission objective is joy. God's joyful mission to save the lost. That sheep is probably no more valuable than any of the others, but when he finds it, he is joyful. And he gets everyone else together and he says, rejoice with me. Jesus, verse seven, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. 
Well, of course, Jesus doesn't mean that some people don't need to repent, that some people don't need to turn around and seek forgiveness and go back to God. But there are plenty of people who don't think they need to repent, like Jesus' listeners, like these Pharisees and teachers of the law. Why else are they complaining about the company that Jesus keeps? Because they're looking and they're thinking, certain people, they are beyond Jesus' reach. But we, we're fine, thank you very much. They smugly assume they've got it all together, that they haven't wandered away, that they don't need finding. And so they share no joy when people who clearly do need finding come to the Good Shepherd, to Jesus Christ. All they have inside their hearts is this miserable muttering. And what is more, the depth of their self-delusion is so deep that Jesus knows he needs to tell the same story twice. Verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. Do you notice how diligently she searches? She, she lights her lamp. She sweeps the house. She searches carefully until she finds it. God is like that when he looks for lost sinners. He doesn't kind of half-heartedly rummage around behind the back of the sofa. His search for lost sinners is a determined search. God's joyful mission to find the lost. Verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, Jesus says, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God's joyful celebration in heaven is not just something that may happen in the future. Jesus says there is rejoicing in the presence of God. It is happening now. And so if we are Christian people here today, then the call upon our lives is to rejoice in this mission today. I guess there may be all sorts of different feelings in our minds when we think about evangelism, about sharing our faith. Maybe there's kind of exhaustion. I've tried that before. It didn't really work. Maybe there's guilt. I don't try it very much, and I've largely given up. Maybe it's kind of apathy. We just don't really think it's very important. Maybe, actually, it's pride. We think, I'm actually quite good at that. But our dominant emotion when it comes to sharing in Jesus' mission ought to be joy. Why? Because that's how God feels about his mission. Evangelism is grounded in the joyful expectation of finding lost people. Now, even if we don't see hundreds, thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus, we can be truly joyful over just one who does. And so as God's people, we don't retreat into a kind of holy huddle like the Pharisees did. We don't look down our noses at people who are unlike us when they become Christians. We go out, we share God's mission, and we look forward to the joy that we will share with others and even with God and the angels in heaven one day and that we can share together today. God's joyful mission to save the lost. Well, that's the first headline. Uh, it leaves us, though, with some answered, unanswered questions, doesn't it? Particularly, who are the lost? Why do they need to be found? How does God find them anyway? Well, the answers, I think, shine out in Jesus' third story and our next lesson, which is uh, obviously going to be a longer point. And I think the answers are more challenging than we might expect. Second, humanity's desperate need to be found. Humanity's desperate need to be found. 
verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. It is an absolutely outrageous thing to ask. Saying to his dad, Dad, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. It's as if he'd rather his father were dead. Dad, why can't you just die so I can have your stuff? Even more shocking, though, than the request, or demand, actually, is the fact that his father answers it positively and grants his request. Instead of chasing this disgraceful son out of the home and disowning him, the father hands it over, hands over the inheritance to his son, and says, son, here you go, go your own way doesn't take long for things to unravel. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. A little bit, uh, it reminds me of Kevin in Home Alone 2. We'll all be watching Home Alone 2, won't we, over Christmas? We certainly will be. He gets his dad's credit card, and he just splashes the cash. This son is a diction- the dictionary definition of prodigal. In my mind, I think, oh, prodigal, that means wayward. Prodigal son, wayward son. It's actually not what prodigal means. Prodigal, here's a definition, extravagant, wastefully or recklessly extravagant. That's what the dictionary says, wastefully or recklessly extravagant. That is what he is, splashing the cash here, there, and everywhere. But then circumstances take a turn for the worst, and the credit runs out. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired him to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Hungry and alone, he hits rock bottom. Remember, this story is told to Jewish people, and pigs are unclean animals. And he doesn't just feed pigs, he wants to eat the pig food. He can't go any lower. It's just one picture of spiritual lostness, of humanity's desperate need to be found. How might we describe his life? I guess hedonism, materialism, a journey of self-discovery, or simply wanting to say, I do it my way. But what is his lostness? No, his lostness is saying, I'm going to take God's good gifts, but I'm going to ignore the giver. I'm going to make my desires ultimate, and I'm going to treat the ultimate one as if he's dirt. It may look for a while as if it works, but it is a one-way street to ruin. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. What does he do? He recognizes his lostness and he comes up with a plan. He thinks, I'm going to go home. I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to be asked to be made like one of dad's hired workers. Not a a servant who lives in the family, who has a regular wage. A hired worker. Someone who just gets paid every now and then when there's work to do. Just the, the real bottom. 
Now, I've heard it said before about this, that, that asking to be made a hired worker, he's somehow actually asking to kind of work his way back into his father's favor, as if he wants to work off his debts, that, that actually he's not really repentant. He's, he wants to try some kind of works religion, if we want to think about it like that. I'm not sure that's right. Jesus said in the first two parables, didn't he, that heaven rejoices when sinners repent. And now here is a sinner repenting. He's got no guarantees that his father's going to forgive him. He simply turns around. He turns around geographically. He turns around relationally. He gets ready. He says, God or Father, I need your mercy. And he's in for the most extraordinary surprise. Verse 20 again. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. It's the most beautiful um, homecoming scene, isn't it? Recon repentance leads to reconciliation. He begins his, his speech, the speech he's been rehearsing all the way home. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he needn't bother. He might as well save his breath. His father's love is more than enough. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. No longer disgraced, but honored. No longer destitute, but restored. No longer an estranged son, suffering the results of sin in exile, but a beloved son, welcome home again. The reversal is absolutely complete. And so just like the lost sheep, leads to rejoicing, just like the lost coin leads to rejoicing when it's found. So when this lost son is found, the party can begin. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The story is told of a young Brazilian girl, Christina. She longed to leave the slums where she lived. And so one morning she packed her bags and she left and her mother woke up and she found that she wasn't there. Her mother knew what life would be like on the streets for a young, attractive girl like Christina. And so she packed her bags too and went out to find her in the city. And she was armed only with a whole bunch of little photos of herself, passport-sized photos of herself that she'd got taken before she left home. Christina's money ran out. Her dream became a nightmare. Until one morning at the bottom of another flight of stairs in another hotel, she saw a photo of her mother taped to the hotel lobby mirror. And slightly anxiously, she went over, she turned it over, and she turned it around and it said, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, doesn't matter, please come home. God longs for lost sons and lost daughters to come home. See, the son was prodigal. He was recklessly extravagant. But there's someone else in this story who is more prodigal, more recklessly extravagant. The father. This feast is far more than this son deserves. The father is delighted to spend it on his son, robes and rings and ranch steak. And it may be this morning that you see yourself in this rebellious son. You know in your heart that you've walked out on God, that you've taken God's gifts but ignored the giver, that you've made, um, 
your desires ultimate things and treated the ultimate one as if he were dirt. And somehow you know this morning it's time to come home. Maybe trying circumstances are driving you back. Maybe it is simply disappointment in the dreams that you once had. And as you turn towards home, you wonder, will God even have me? Please realize from this story that your Heavenly Father is waiting for you. He's ready to run to you, to embrace you, to kiss you. He's rich enough to cover whatever you've spent. His grace is wide enough, extravagant enough to cover, overcome your shame. God wants repentant sons and daughters, repentant sinners at his table. He's ready to celebrate even you today. And that could be the end of the story. But it's not. In fact, it's not even the punchline of the story because Jesus doesn't tell this story, first of all, to younger brothers. Jesus doesn't tell this story, first of all, so that we well up with tears and think, isn't that amazing? Jesus tells this story, first of all, to older brothers, and the dominant emotion that comes through in the next part of the chapter is not joy but anger. He wants us to see humanity's desperate need to be found. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So it is the other son's turn to disgrace his father. His younger brother left home. Now the older brother shuts himself outside the home. And very clearly he is here to remind us of those muttering religious elites that Jesus was hanging out with at the beginning of the chapter. They just couldn't stomach that. And he can't stomach the fact that his father has his younger brother back at the dinner table. He gives his dad a piece of his mind. Verse 28. His father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Well, at first glance, it looks as if he's got a bit of a point. This brother, he's served in the family business for years. But do you notice his heart? He sees himself as a slave. He doesn't see himself as a dearly loved son. He has no assurance of his father's love. He says to him, you never threw me a party. And his life has become one of joyless moralism. He keeps the rules, he keeps his father in his debt, and he just can't get over the injustice of it all. No wonder he's angry. No wonder he's consumed by a toxic sense of his own superiority. Listen to what he says. This son of yours is disdained, is dripping of every syllable. The first son rebelled, the second son obeyed. Both are desperately lost. And the father wants to find them both. My son, 
The father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Do you notice, again, there's no righteous fury over his son's insolence. There's no disowning him for the public disgrace he has caused. It's just extraordinary gentleness and love. The father, he has already divided his estate. Do you know what that meant? That meant the younger son got his share and the older son got his share, which, by the way, was two-thirds, not one-third. So he's got double what the younger son's got. That young goat, the older son, had his eye on. Well, the father's already given it to him. It already belongs to the older son. He didn't need to envy his brother But he does need to join the party because the father won't disown the son and so neither must the brother. Again, listen to what the father says. This brother of yours, he says, what are you going to do? Are you going to stay outside stewing in your anger or are you going to come inside and rejoice? We don't know. What is he going to do? Because that's where Jesus finishes the story. Why does Jesus leave the story like that? Um, The Christian writer and pastor Tim Keller puts it like this, uh, words on the screen. It may be that Jesus is trying to say that while both forms of self-salvation projects are equally wrong, each one is not equally dangerous. The younger son's plight was crashingly obvious. He left the father literally, physically, and morally. Though the older son stayed at home, he was actually more distant and alienated than his brother because he was blind to his true condition. Being an elder brother Pharisee is a more spiritually desperate condition. If we've been Christians for a while, our lives probably don't look very much like the younger brother. They may have done in the past, but hopefully they don't look much like his life now. Similarly, if we, if we keep Christian company, if we, are, if we live in a loosely Christian culture, we will probably want to be good people. We will probably, most of us here this morning, look more like the older brother than the younger one. And so the sting in the story is the challenge that we probably need to face up to. What is our response to Jesus' mission? How do we feel about the company he keeps? Will we rejoice like the finders of the lost sheep and and the lost coin? Will we rejoice and celebrate like the father in his household? Or will we resort to miserable muttering like the Pharisees and caustic anger like the older brother? If we do, then we risk finding ourselves outside the feast, unaware of our desperate need to be found. So we've seen God's joyful mission to find the lost. We've uncovered humanity's desperate need to be found. Let me just finish briefly with a question that I I asked earlier briefly, and I've left it unanswered. How does God find people anyway? How does God find people anyway? Well, a few things come through in this chapter. The Father's love. The Father's love for each brother is, is so clear. Each brother's need to repent is very clear as well. One has to turn away from sinful self-indulgence, the other one from sinful self-righteousness. But we don't just need love and repentance to be found. 
God's mission to find the lost also needs a saviour. Do you notice the difference between the first two stories and the third story? The first two stories each have a character who goes out looking for what's lost. The man goes and looks for the lost sheep. The woman goes looking for the lost coin. No one goes looking for the brother. Why does Jesus tell the story like that? Why does Jesus miss out the finder for a brother who is so obviously desperately lost? I think because that was what the older brother was supposed to do. He should have gone looking for his prodigal brother. He should have said to his dad, Dad, my brother's been an absolute fool. He's spent everything. He's in desperate trouble. But I've got my share of the estate, and I'm going to spend that to go and find him and bring him home. But he doesn't. He refuses to pay the price to go looking for his brother. Jesus didn't. The father spent extravagantly when his young son came home. Our God did the same to get us home. Literally, recklessly, not reckoning our sins against us, but reckoning them against Christ on the cross, our perfect older brother. The son was clothed with the best robe when he came into the world. God's son died disgraced, dishonored, naked outside the city so we could be welcomed into the feast. So how do we feel about the company Jesus keeps? How do we feel about why he came into the world? How do we feel about his invitation to share in his mission to find the lost? There's a choice. There's kind of a mutteringness and there's a joy. The Pharisees started, didn't they, muttering that Jesus welcomed sinners and even ate with them. Praise God that Jesus welcomed sinners and ate with them. Praise God that he will do the same for all eternity. Should we bow our heads and pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your joyful mission to find the lost. And uh, we come before you this morning recognizing our lostness. Maybe some of us here are very conscious that we are like younger brothers. Maybe others recognizing that too often we can be too much like the older brother. We thank you for Jesus who went out to seek and to find us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to share his joy as we consider the salvation that we have received and as we join him in seeking to share that salvation with others. For we ask in his name. Amen.